Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name's Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's the day I get to admit that, you know, Rob, sometimes I just want to live in a cyber panic movie from the early 90s. <laughs> Why you know, is that, Joe? Well, there there were a lot of movies like these, and something about them is so cool. It, the, these movies from like, eh, say, 1989 to 1995 or so, mm-hmm. that were clearly obsessed with the thrilling and terrifying potential of email and the World Wide Web, and usually for some reason, virtual reality at the same time. Oh, yeah. Uh, so one of the greats in this genre is Hackers, which came out in 1995, full cast of Matthew Lillard's <laughs> and associated Lillardians, all just hacking, hacking it up, hacking with joysticks, hacking with video game controllers. They square off against Fisher Stevens in a hacker versus hacker battle. Uh, it, it's absolutely glorious. This is an all-time great, worthy of an episode of its own someday. Yeah, I never saw this one, but this one, Hackers is, is like really, a, really attractive, cool hacker uh, dudes and chicks battling it out, right? Uh, absolutely. They're, they're like super punk. And that's a thing that these early 90s movies really like they're made by adults who don't know how to use email and they're scared of it but they're writing a movie about it and mm-hmm. so you know they're uh they they can't tell the difference between uh say like anarcho punk subculture and kids who know how to use computers it all just blends together for them so like computers and hacking are basically the same as skateboarding and graffiti <laughs> and I guess it's probably complicated, too, by the, the existence of, of cyberpunk as a genre that that tends to have the, the, you know, the punk elements and industrial elements combined with some of these sa- the same cutting edge technological ideas. Right. And then, of course, another 1995 movie was The Net, which had Sandra Bullock. She watched Sandra Bullock get caught in the net. This is one where the hacker becomes the hacked. Sandra Bullock plays like a computer nerd who is so obsessed with computers, she even orders pizza over the Internet. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) And then it's supposed to like just absolutely melt your mind with this concept. But then somebody hacks her back. And a deadly game of hacking cat and mouse ensues. She has to like run around. And, you know, there was a common thing. It shows up in the movie we're going to be talking about today as well. There was a common thing in these early 90s cyber panic movies that, um, that like by hacking into a computer or an electrical grid, you could always get a full like blueprint schematic of any building and have access to all of the appliances in that building and control over them. Yeah, it's just absolute power. Um, and and of course, this is the confusing thing about all of this uh, it, is that is that yes there there are concerns about uh, hacking hackers being able to access things like uh, um, you know electrical grid systems and infrastructure and so forth like these are not in and of themselves unrealistic concepts but the ease of access is often uh, way overstated or it's or certainly it's it's visually presented to the audience in a way that seems to simplify it yeah and a lot of times it's hard to tell whether the oversimplification that's going on of of the computer stuff in these 90s movies whether that is 
just trying to make the story go along more smoothly. You know, they're simplifying it in the same way that you would have, you know, techno babble in any other science fiction movie that's massively oversimplified just to like make it clear. Okay, here's what the plot stakes are. Now we can Mm -hmm. move on. Or whether it's just like people had no idea what they were talking about. Right. Yeah. There's always that element of, yeah, they they don't really, when they know it's cutting edge and they know that we should be afraid of it to some extent, but that's, it doesn't go a lot deeper than that. But, but of course the fear is key. I mean, because you're dealing with science fiction, really in all these cases, even in something like the net, it is about um, modern day anxieties and fears over where technology is taking us. And this concern that technology will not just purely reflect the best of us, but will also reflect the worst of us, and that the worst of humanity will be tied up in it. And really, the, the movie we're going to look at today is, is a very literal exploration of, of the latter theme. Right. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about an early 90s cyber panic movie that came before Hackers, before The Net. It is Rachel Talalay's Ghost in the Machine from 1993. Not to be confused with 1995's Ghost in the Shell, Mamoru Oshii's uh, anime adaptation of Masamune Shiro's 1989 manga. Um, <laughs> nothing really. Which I've to never do with seen. That. I I know it's quite popular. It's is it oh, also yeah. about like uh, like people getting their brains in computers? I mean. It, yeah, to the extent that, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, but it's like, it's total like futuristic cyberpunk anime uh, and, and really quite good, especially especially the first two films um, that came out, um, Ghost in the Shell and Ghost in the Shell 2. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of other stuff out there. They did like a TV series, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pivotal uh, cyberpunk anime for sure. Okay, but it like full on embraces like like deep future thinking about the, you know, extreme possibilities. This is yeah. not like a, there's a demon in the ATM, which is more right. the the speed we're talking about. Yeah, the, yeah, this so this is Ghost in the Machine from 1993, which I have to mention is one year after The Lawnmower Man, which of course <laughs> is the uh, the virtual reality film that is ever so loosely, ever so loosely based on a Stephen King short story about a man who eats grass. Could you even say based? I mean, I don't even know what is the same other than the fact that there is a lawnmower in it. Yeah, virtually nothing. I I feel like there might have even been some thread where they had to like remove uh, King's name from it. I don't know. There was I, I'm not sure if that's, that's if that's true or not, but it was supposedly a Stephen King adaptation, but it was just this, you know, crazy virtual reality cyber uh, escape film. Okay, so I got to give the elevator pitch on Ghost in the Machine, and I was looking at the VHS box art, and I feel like I cannot do any better than the copy on the VHS box, so I got to read straight from that. Last night, a serial killer died. His body was laid to rest, but his soul has come online. Mm -hmm. Free to continue his reign of terror by using electronic circuitry, the serial killer's next target is the unsuspecting Terry Monroe, Karen Allen, and her teenage son. Their only chance for survival is with the help of a brilliant, quote, computer hacker, In this suspenseful techno-thriller, terror strikes when it's least expected, and the only cure for this virus is to destroy it. All right. Well, well, let's let's go to the next step and just have a splash of that audio trailer. Oh, I think it'll probably repeat some of the same words I just said, so ready yourself. This is going to be fun, Terry. Who is this? I'm killing your friends. Looks like there was someone else in there with us. 
killer died in this hospital. And it was plugged into your computer. There's no way anyone can kill somebody with a computer. Ghost in the Machine. Plug in to your worst nightmare. Man, I love that trailer. So, so, so good. The, the, I, when I was reading about this movie, I hadn't seen it yet. And so mm-hmm. I had to, I watched the trailer to see like, is this going to be worth watching? And that pulled me in hard. Yeah, I agree. When you sent the trailer to me, um, uh, when I, when I watched it all the way through, I'm like, yeah, I think this is going to be it. I, I think Joe's going to, going to go for this one once he uh, uh, gives it a, a test run. So uh, I guess maybe we should start by talking about some of the people of note, and then we can talk about the plot a little bit and then get mm-hmm. into some uh, ideas and connections. And I, and I guess the best place to start is with the director, Rachel Talalay, who is the, the brain behind a number of great bad taste classics. For example, yep. Fred, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. It was not the final one, but it was the sixth one. It came out in 1991. And in a minute, I wanted to talk about how, how she worked her way up to directing that movie. Um, but if you if you don't remember which one that is, it's the one where Robert England has become a full-on just stand-up comedian or maybe more <laughs> applicably uh, applicably a prop comic. He's like Carrot Top in this movie, just full comedian jokes as he kills people. Like he kills so that he can make puns at this point, yes. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember this movie also, for some reason, has Tom Arnold and Roseanne Barr in it. I think they're just cameos. The only thing I remember about it is that it had a notable, or I think it was notable, Inagata DeVita scene where they're playing mm-hmm. Iron Butterflies, Inagata DeVita, and there's like Freddy's coming out of a television or something. Or maybe yeah, somebody uh, sucked into a television. I don't remember. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, another movie she made, one that I haven't seen, but I really want to see now because uh, reading about it, it sounds pretty great, is Tank Girl from 1995. This is a sort of post-apocalyptic warrior of the desert movie. Yeah. Now, Tank Girl, I remember when it came out and I remember catching clips of it. Either they were just clips on a clip show or maybe I saw part of it on TV. And I remember like really digging it. Um and, and wanting to see it at the time uh, because, you know, it has all these crazy elements going on in it. You got Malcolm McDowell with some sort of a crazy robot arm. He's like an evil corporate overlord who, like, is trying to buy up all the water. Yeah, in the desert uh, for some reason. Mm-hmm. You've got, I think it's a, yeah, post-apocalyptic, like a comet's hit the earth or something. You got mm-hmm. Ice-T as a ripper, which is like a mutant kangaroo person. And wow. then you got Lori Petty. Uh, as Tank Girl, who was just, you know, overflowing with with manic energy and 90s coolness, uh, along with just, you know, just a cool aesthetic uh, vibe to it. Um, so I remember I remember really wanting to see it and then I didn't see it. And by the time it had become available to watch on, t- on VHS or whatever, um, I had forgotten about it. So I I've, I've never actually seen it all the way through. I think I picked it up a time or two and the the bad taste aspect came into play like like okay. you say some of these films are kind of bad taste films where you know there's a, maybe some bits of it are a little bit cruder than you think they're going to be and you just mm-hmm. i don't know in, in my case i might have decided previously like i don't know if i'm in the mood for this right now i after we finished after i finished watching ghost in the machine i put tank girl back on again because it's nice. as of this recording available on uh, amazon prime uh, in the in the united states 
and uh, I have to say it's it's I'm enjoying it thus far. There continue to be some of those those bad taste uh, touch points where I'm like, oh, this is kind of a mixed bag, but there are things about it that I like. So we'll see. I'm going to probably keep watching it. Well, so she's got a new movie out just this year called A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, which I haven't seen. Oh. But looking at her resume, it seems like. Uh, in recent years, uh, Talloy mostly directs TV episodes, including episodes of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, of Sherlock, and of course of Doctor Who. So our, our beloved uh, Whovioids out there, like, what do you think of her episodes? I think they're mostly in the Peter Capaldi seasons. I, I don't think they're called Whovioids, though. I think I think you're, you're <laughs> no, that's you're, it. You're, you're that is to... what it is. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's done a, a great deal of TV work, though. Uh, like, you, it's just a lot of top tier genre stuff. Uh, I know she did an episode of Doom Patrol, which is a, a show that uh, that I've been enjoying. Yeah, Talalay's got a pretty interesting career trajectory. So, like, both of her parents were scientists, and starting sometime in her childhood, I think when she was like four years old, she was living in Baltimore because both of her parents were working at Johns Hopkins. And according to her bio on IMD, IMDb. She studied mathematics at Yale and then t- went to work for a while as like a computer programmer at Johns Hopkins. Oh. Uh, somehow she got connected with John Waters. I don't know if this is a being in Baltimore thing. I guess in Baltimore, you know, there's always a chance you'll stumble into a Maryland nest of John Waters's. Uh, somehow she did. However, they got connected. Talalay ended up working with the John Waters crew. And so uh, she, she also worked with John Waters associates like Divine as a production assistant on Polyester and then on movies like Hairspray and Crybaby. Uh, at some point, John Waters was the officiant at Talalay's wedding, which is a, a, oh, an amazing neat. honor. That's a good get, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, she ended up working on the production of a number of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies for New Line Cinema. So I, I think the way it worked, uh, so I was watching an interview with Talalay that she did for Netflix recently, and she started in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie as a location manager. And then in the subsequent films, she just kept working her, her, her way up. She was production manager, then line producer, then producer. And then eventually by Freddy Six, she was like, well, I'm going to direct. And she did. Oh, wow. But also in this interview, she talks about how when she was a kid, she was obsessed with movies like she she wanted to tap dance along with Fred Astaire but she realized she couldn't tap dance she wanted to sing like Barbara Streisand uh, she wanted to be like in the way we were but she couldn't sing uh, but movies provided this fantasy framework in which she could imagine living out the things she wanted to do. And so she got very into the idea of working in the movies. And apparently her, her parents strongly encouraged her uh, and uh, I guess all of their children to go into the sciences. Like they bought them microscopes and wanted them to go to university and all that. And she says she very much rebelled against this kind of encouragement. She wanted to push off into the arts. And while the arts were her passion, her parents actually did convince her to go to college. So she, like I said, she majored in math. Uh, I think they expected she would end up working for IBM or have some kind of tech career. But after she completed her education and worked in SciTech for a bit, she migrated to these passion projects, which at the time were low-budget horror films. And she talks about how her parents were not huge fans of these movies. <laughs> um, but that's great that she has the uh, like the, the the mathematical and, and programming background going into this film. Yeah, which is hilarious. Which makes me think. Okay, so Rachel Talalay understood how computers worked. Now I will say she didn't write the script for this movie. Right. So yeah, that is a key. lot of the mm-hmm. the really 
off the wall stuff about how the computers and the electrical grid and everything work. Um, you know, that's not out of her brain, but <laughs> at least she seems comfortable with it. So I'd say that this is a, um, a narrative convenience. And, uh, you know, another thing about her movies is that you never get the sense that she's taking anything too seriously. Like she wouldn't necessarily get hung up on plausibility questions about how the, the technology works. I feel more like her style is very much in the flair. Yeah, 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 certainly. Like this is this is a movie that yeah, has some some dumbness to it. Uh, but but it has a lot of style to it. Uh, some of the style, I don't know, you might you might have needed to be a television viewer in in the 90s to to get it all and to feel the you know, sense of nostalgia for it, but it's it's evident. Now, as for the cast, you've got some some great luminaries here. Uh, the the main character in this movie, Terry Monroe, is played by Karen Allen. And hey, what's not to love about Karen Allen? Uh, she's always great. She's I I would say she's great in this, but her, her character, the way it's written, is basically Kathy from the comic strip. She's just like computers, <laughs> computers, ack. Yeah, I was instantly, the scene where she goes into a computer store, I was instantly reminded of the Everything is Terrible video, uh, Woman versus Computer. Have you seen this? Um, Yeah, where it's some kind of early 90s training video that's about like, why can't, why are computers so hard for women to understand? Yeah, and so she kind of embodies this kind of attitude in this. Um, was that but, a but, thing even back then? Did people actually think that? <laughs> I mean, they made that video. I, 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 I'm, I'm to assume that was kind of the vibe mm-hmm. um, that at least some people thought and thought and decided to market things around it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically her character in this. But I mean, she's still Karen Allen. She's always going to be Marion Ravenwood from Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. So she's she's kind of untouchable in my book. You know, this this doesn't. Uh, doesn't take anything away from her. She's an oddly grounding presence uh, because this movie is both tonally and conceptually absolutely bonkers. Like it, it mm-hmm. is full of like bad taste and just exceeding weirdness. But the down to earth charm of Karen Allen somehow makes it seem less off the wall than it would otherwise. Yeah, yeah, she's totally believable as this this working mom who's you know just trying to keep it together between work and. Ooh, this kid who we'll get to in a bit. Oh, I can't. Uh, wait and then, to of get course, the <laughs> otherworldly hackers uh, messing with their life on top of everything. Right. Uh, and then you've got another character who's played by this guy, Chris Mulkey. He plays a, mm-hmm. a, a hacker, a good hacker named Bram Walker. They just had to name him Bram. I don't know. Something about that's very funny. But Chris Mulkey is he's like he's like sinister Bill Murray. Do you need Bill Murray, but less funny and more possibly of a criminal element? Here's your guy. Yeah, he he looks kind of like Bill Murray, but he straight up has Alec Baldwin's voice. Like a few times I looked away from the screen, I heard his voice, and I thought it was Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock. You know, he has <laughs> yeah. just that, that uh-huh. same gravelly voice. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. He's he's an actor who, he, especially in this film, but I think in general, he tends to have that um, overpowering divorced cop vibe to him. So he plays mm-hmm. that sort of character a lot. Yeah. Uh, but he's been in a ton of stuff, like uh, lots of stuff that is not even worth mentioning. But he's just, you know, a very full professional resume of work on TV and film. He was in Twin Peaks. And more to the point, he was in oh. Dreamscape, which is a wonderful film um, and that we'll have to 
think about doing someday, as well as Runaway, the 1984 Michael Crichton tiny robot movie starring Tom Selleck, Cynthia Rhodes, Gene Simmons, and Christy Alley. I do not know anything about this movie. I don't think I even knew this existed, so we'll, we should revisit that. Uh, but I, I was thinking about how in Twin Peaks, they bring in Chris Mulkey as a level three bad guy. Because you yeah. know how in the first season of Twin Peaks, there's this constant escalation of like some guy you think is a really scary guy, but then there's another guy that he's even scared of. And so I, I don't remember the other characters' names, but like the really bad ponytail guy is afraid of off-brand Bill Murray. <laughs> we'll have to take your word for it because, uh, you know, I haven't actually sat down and watched uh, Twin Peaks yet. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's on the list. It's just hard to make time for it. I want to watch it, but I don't know. That seems like a lot of show. So there's a cameo in this movie by the guy who plays Toby Ziegler on The West Wing. Uh, Richard Schiff is the actor's name. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, he plays an MRI technician whose voice gets featured in the credits. So you might have heard it just a minute ago because he's actually operating the machinery in the movie's pivotal she's going to blow scene. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I looked looked him up. He was also in Tank Girl. So, oh, okay. Not sure what the exact connection there was, but he's in in both of those films in in bit parts. A repeat Talalay player. Yeah, uh, but this movie. So we mentioned Talalay didn't write it. It was written by two Bills, William Davies and William Osborne. And so you looked these guys up. Yeah, yeah. These are the guys who wrote Twins and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Yep. And then Osborne went on to write The Scorpion King, and Davies went on to uh, write the screenplay for How to Train Your Dragon and and, and various other projects. Um, I think he recently was the writer on a a TV series titled uh, Letter to the King, which uh, Hmm. I think my wife was watching and said was quite good. So, so yeah, these are are, uh, accomplished uh, screenplay writers here. Uh, interesting. Now, this movie has original music by somebody named Graham Ravel. And when I saw his name in the opening credits, I knew I recognized it from somewhere. And I uh, it took me a minute, but I figured out where. Actually, Ravel has done tons of movie scores, including, and this one's for you, Rob, the Riddick movies. <laughs> uh, apparently, he's a repeat collaborator with Riddick director David Tuhi. But, uh, but I realized that where I knew his name from was back when I used to listen to the original motion picture soundtrack of The Crow, which now this is kind of confusing because I think he did the original score that appeared in The Crow, and most of the music on that soundtrack is like pop music. It's got uh, Burn by The Cure, which is fantastic, but it's also got Nine Inch Nails, Jesus and Mary Chain. It is is music to resent your parents to. uh, love you, mom and dad. No, nothing. <laughs> no hard feelings. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I feel you on that. I, I definitely uh, uh, had had this soundtrack as well. My, my wife had it. We, we sometimes talk about it because what will happen is we'll be like, oh, man, what are we going to listen to on this drive? Let's mm. put the Cure soundtrack on. Let's. That, that was a great, great soundtrack. And I think when you dip back into it, you tend to find that was a soundtrack that had one or two songs that I really liked back in the, in the nineties. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it does have some good tracks on it. And, and certainly at the time it was, it was a really solid soundtrack album. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, definitely that cure song. It's like the first track on it is, is amazing. The, uh, then you, you get into like some Rollins band stuff that, you know, you could take or leave. I don't know. I love that Rollins band song. Oh, okay. Um, Ghost Rider. I think it was called. Um, yep. Oh, yeah. okay. So I, that's the highlight for you. Well, it was one of the highlights. I liked it. 
I liked it back in the day. I don't really like it's not in regular rotation these days. Uh, um, but, <laughs> but so he does the original music for this movie and it's it's funny because the music that plays in the opening credits very much makes me think this is vaporwave 25 years ahead of its time, which is weird because you could just say that this is what vaporwave is supposed to be a copy or a satire on. But then again, I feel like a very important feature of vaporwave is that it's a photocopy of something that never exactly existed in the first place. So this movie in some ways has aspects of a, a, a missing original. Really? You got a vaporwave vibe from the yeah. soundtrack to this movie. The, the, the opening credits music. Yeah. A little bit. Oh, okay. This very, I don't know. you remember them? It when the Terminator no. font is showing all the names and it's very chill. Now I have to say that the music in this film, it's as if it didn't exist. It was okay. just so, I mean, I'm sure it was fine and, <laughs> and maybe I was just distracted when I first put it, put it on. But, um, yeah, the, this is one of those scores that is perfectly competent, but i I barely thought about it. You know, it was just like purely functional mm. for me. Okay, well, let's round out the cast before we get into the plot. So, well, well, wait, uh, but has, I see you have a you have another note in here. Um, we what? have to touch on about uh, 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 oh, Ravel. Oh, oh, Ravel is sometimes a collaborator with the guy. I can't remember his real name, but uh, Lustmord. See, now this surprises me because because again, this is a such a forgettable soundtrack. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's such a forgettable score, and the idea that he also works with Lustmord. I mean, that that reveals there's you know, a there's a lot more depth to uh, to Ravel here, but uh, but also yeah, that's a stark contrast. Like if Lustmord had done the soundtrack for this film, I'd probably be raving <laughs> wow. about it. Yeah. Um. So this, yeah. Well, I I do want to call out like I'm not singling out the 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 original score for this film as all that notable, except in the opening credits where it sounds like vaporwave. But okay. I'm going to have to revisit it. I may have I may have been distracted. Maybe I'm losing my mind. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Jessica Walters in this movie. We're, we're we we should have mentioned that earlier. Lucille oh, yeah. Bluth, the matriarch of Arrested Development. Yeah, she basically plays Lucille Bluth in this as well. Just yeah. it's a part. It seems written for her. It uh-huh. plays to her strength. She's kind of she's she's a Karen Allen's fussy mother, mm-hmm. and she's doing things like like buying a proper khaki pants for the teenager. Yeah, she's like a human glass of prosecco. She's just constantly she's <laughs> turning her nose up at everything so hard that her neck's gonna break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's she's not in this much, but she's great in in the scenes that she's in for sure. But then we should get to the real. I think the star of this cast, which is um, which which is the child of Karen Allen in this movie, who is straight out of a Game Boy commercial. He's like skateboard, backwards hat, flannel shirt tied around the waist, early 90s uh, adults perception of what a cool kid is like. And he is totally radical. Yes, he he is poochy in human form. He's he's wearing all the he's wearing all the poochy clothes, uh, like you say. He's cool to the max. He's he's talking crap to his mom. He's he's too cool for his mom. He his loves include creeping on the teen neighborhood girl uh, who's also like um, a babysitter, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then also he loves uh, '90s hip hop. Uh, and actually, he seems to have really good taste in '90s hip hop. Like if you just look at the the songs featured in this movie you're like oh man this has a great soundtrack well it's just incidental music every time you go into kid poochie's room um but he also likes softcore robot video games yeah. <laughs> there's one really cringy scene yeah. where he's powering oh, that up god that was hard to watch <laughs> yeah 
There are few scenes featuring Kid Poochie here that do not elect a groan, uh, I have to say. I mean, he's yeah. fine as, as a kid actor and nothing against um, Horn F here, but yeah, this kid is just straight up Poochie. Yeah. And I guess we should also point out that the killer in this film, who we'll talk about uh, a bit more as we pr- proceed here, is played by an actor named Ted Mark. Co, would you say? Marcou? I'm Marcou? not sure how you say that. M-A-R-C-O-U-X. Yeah. So he he's one of these guys, you look him up on IMDb and there's not even a photograph of him. But he's done a lot of work, a lot of voiceover narration, including for episodes of Nova and a series called Killer Unknown. And that, that seems like the perfect combination considering this film. Yeah. So the movie, the plot really starts with the killer here. I guess uh, if, if we want to get into the plot are are you ready yeah let's go let's dive right in so you of course there are opening credits with what would you guess it shows in the opening credits it's like weird animations ridiculous drawings of circuit boards and and it's playing Mm -hmm. the music that you did not agree was vaporwave-esque and it's showing (laughs) the names of all the people who worked on the movie in the terminator font like the font that scrolls over ronald schwarzenegger's eyes when he's looking at the world and it's all red Mm -hmm. and then it just comes up on the killer parking his car outside a house he's this evil murderer and he's eating a pixie stick and uh and you see him creeping basically yeah he's Uh, got a trunk full of knives which is is pretty impressive like wow that that's quite a kill kit you got there right and then we meet our main characters uh we we, i think we meet kid poochie before we meet karen allen oh because poochie is pulling a con uh poochie and his best friend are trying to pull a like lotto cyber scam on their basketball coach yeah um and so he's trying to trick his basketball coach into buying a fake lottery ticket and that they do some some phone freaking to to trick him into thinking it's real oh yeah it was it was phone freaking right yeah which is kind of like the the, the immediate predecessor to hacking yeah uh, so, so we meet uh, Kid Poochie and we meet Karen Allen and then we come back to see the work of the evil killer and it's one of those things where it uh, it pulls you know the camera pans up on apple pie and baseball how wholesome literally uh, <laughs> there's a whole apple pie on the counter and next to it is a baseball glove that, with i think a baseball in it mm-hmm. which is this it's just a superposition of terrible and brilliant i'm not sure like where to go with it like it's either incredibly stupid or it's just it's just positioned appropriately within the context of this film i can't decide oh no i mean i think it's right i mean it's hard to talk about exactly like what the I don't think you could argue this movie is good. Like this movie is definitely mm-hmm. bad, but it's like the kind of bad movie that's made by smart people. It's yeah. like it, it has a certain uh wink, a, a sparkle in its eye about all of the the pie yeah. and the bases ball and then panning over to the murder scene. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then we go to one of my favorite early scenes, which is th- – this is – I just want to give so many chef kisses. This scene is what these types of movies are all about, and it's Karen Allen and and Kid Poochie are shopping for a gift for Karen Allen's boss mm-hmm. at a computer store. And <laughs> so they're they're trying to buy desktop software, quote, desktop software. And this guy, the salesman there is like showing them how all the desktop software works. I think he's trying to sell them on a computer program called the Paper Warrior. And Karen Allen the whole time is like, computers? How do computers work? <laughs> yeah, I, I do not like computers. <laughs> 
ack ack. She hates it. Uh, and the, <laughs> but the kid is all fascinated because he loves technology, and he's like, oh, mm-hmm. he walks up to. There's a guy in the computer store repairing a bunch of technology and the kid goes up and wants to touch it. And then the guy doing the repairs is all creepy. And then you get your first indication, like, could this be the murderer we saw earlier? And of course the murderer works at the computer store. It's absolutely the murderer. (laughs) Uh, But the guy's like demonstrating this handheld scanner that scans address books into the computer in 1993. I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, this would be key because we find out a little later, this is the address book killer. This is what he does. Yeah. He like steals address books, scans address books, and kills people based on their addresses in the address book. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's just like he goes down the page in the address books and, and kills everybody in there. Yeah, it's like somebody saw Terminator and somebody saw Manhunter and they kind of very loosely combined the the villains of both into one being here. Right. Uh, and then next we're going to meet off-brand Bill Murray. So we, we cut away to Bill Murray arriving at a company called data net and mm-hmm. that's another thing i love about these movies is the names of the companies or you know the computer companies and and networks and systems could have been SysTech, could have been data net could have been cybernet <laughs> could have been oh wait that that's actually from a movie yeah yeah that, that's that's terminator right uh, but Bill Murray shows up and he is wet. He's been like rained on and he's like, hey, I'm here for the job. And <laughs> there's this guy who's, I guess, his boss now and is just uh, is like, oh, you thought you were so smart. And we find out that uh, this Bill Murray, B- Bill Murray character, uh, his, his character's name is Bram Walker. And he's like a former Robin Hood hacker of some kind. What was the deal that we find out he did? He, he did some sort of a hack on the IRS. So, you know, he was technically a criminal but he was he was going after the bad guy so and now he's turned like full white hat hacker mm-hmm. uh yeah and the, this scene's just full of stuff uh the 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 boss is like openly saying like you used to think you were so smart well now i'm your boss mm-hmm. <laughs> i believe this is also the scene where one of the characters refers to something as being controversial or or as hated quote as howard stern <laughs> <laughs> which, which nicely cements it in the time. Uh, I think they're talking about junk mail. Like this company yeah. <laughs> is like a this company like basically spams people's paper mailboxes. Mm, okay, I'm not sure why they're called DataNet if they do, but they've got a bunch of computers too. Maybe they need the most high powered computers in the world in order to spam people's mailboxes. Oh yeah, because that's the thing. They have some crazy advanced computers here. Um. So some stuff, we, we meet some more characters, we meet Lucille Bluth, uh, but then the, the next big thing that happens is that the killer is on his way to do something. Is he coming to murder Karen Allen for some reason? I, I think that's implied that he's like going to her house. I think so. Yeah, he's he's on the way. Um, but on the way, we, we sort of get a deus ex machina, you know, uh, this movie's called Ghost in the Machine, but it features several uh, got out of the machines. He gets into a car crash and he's like he rolls down a hill and he smashes through a graveyard. And it's one of those great things where the killer's like, you know, he's crashing his car and he's laughing the whole time to show how (laughs) twisted he really is. It's like, yay, death. Yeah. Uh, And this is funny because this ties into a real thing. There's a part where he smashes through a graveyard and like knocks Mm -hmm. over a bunch of headstones, which is something that I saw happen firsthand in reality one time. Oh, really? Yeah. I was out 
here in town, I was out for a walk through one of the local graveyards. Um, and I think it was a kid and his mom there were practicing driving. So he must have, you know, be a learner's permit or something. And they were in one of the driveways of the, the graveyard and they were sitting in the car for a while. And then the kid is in the driver's seat. He gradually starts accelerating and then just speeds up, goes over the curb and like knocks over like six headstones. And uh, <laughs> then they come to a stop. Everybody was okay. Nobody was harmed, but they, they did cause some, some graveyard damage. And I remember feeling extremely bad and embarrassed for that kid. Now the killer in this does some graveyard damage and sustains some grave damage himself, right? That's right. So, he, they, you know, they take him to the hospital. He's dying. They put the body in an MRI. Is that normally what they do to you when you're, like, on the verge <laughs> of death? Is they put Yeah, you just, in an he's MRI? about to die. Get him in the, uh, the MRI. I don't know. Maybe uh, there'd be some reason to do that. But uh, they put him in the MRI. And, again, Richard Schiff, Toby Ziegler, is an MRI technician. And then lightning strikes, and there's a power surge. Yes, and this, this scene is great because we have a convergence of often poorly understood natural phenomena, misunderstood technology, and, of course, the brain itself. So, of course, lightning can make an MRI machine straight up jack your brain and upload it not only into the Internet, but into the electrical grid and everything yeah. else. Yeah, and this sets up the rest of the movie. So the title, Ghost in the Machine, is completely literal. The premise mm -hmm. of this film, like the title is also the elevator pitch for the movie. It is that there is literally a killer's ghost uploaded to an internet and inside all of the machines now. Yeah, and he can do everything. And now he's not, um, you know, he can't be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. He has to travel around through your circuitry and your computers from this screen to that screen. But wherever he goes, he has like full access and can do absolutely whatever he wants. Even if the there's kind of a maximum overdrive principle in place here. Like even if it's not a thing that you could actually hack, you know, like you can he can manipulate physical buttons and mm -hmm. whatnot. No. Um but he, yeah, but it's not a concern for him because he has absolute power. Right. Uh, I like another premise here in the scene is that when you die, you turn into a screensaver. Yeah, and I actually really love these scenes. There, there are all these flashy scenes of the killer as an MRI uh, GIF of a skull, you know, where it's like flowing back and forth. Uh, it, it's pretty cool. Shades of um, the killer from RoboCop Two. What's his name? Kane. Yes. You know, uh, Tom Noonan. Where yeah. if you're digitized, you're just this distorted madness, you know. Uh, and all of these graphics, mm. not only these graphics of the killer himself, but the, him moving around through various systems, it, it reminds me a lot of the computer graphics that were really popular and cool at this time. I'm thinking MTV stuff like liquid television, but also the Mind's Eye VHS and possibly DVD series. Did you remember seeing ads for these or anything? I mean, they have a look that is very familiar to me, but I don't think I ever saw these things in particular. They... They are from a time in which there was a lot of stuff, you know, just interstitial material on TV and stuff that looked like this. Yeah. Mind's Eye, worth looking up if you're, if you're into this sort of thing. I think most of them have been uploaded in full onto YouTube. Uh, but it's just a bunch of sort of psychedelic and surreal uh, short CGI films of the time. And it, it, anyway, it, this, this film reminded me of that stuff a lot. Yeah. 
so so here we're set up for the rest of the movie where you can probably kind of guess what happened, especially if you've ever seen the movie Shocker, which was directed by Wes Craven. Oh, um, yeah. Which there, there are a lot of similarities in the plot here. That's also about a killer who gets sucked into the electrical grid and just like takes over machines and kills people. Uh, which is the better film? Ooh, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. They're both bad. They're both in bad taste, but they both have their their sort of stylistic pleasures. I mean, they're they're both highly entertaining, fun, funny, bad movies in bad taste. Okay, but this one has Karen Allen. So that, that's true. Though the other one has uh, the guy who plays uh, Skinner from the X Files. He's the killer. In oh Shonda. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and he, man, he, he just like eats miles of the scenery in that movie. He's like a, <laughs> yeah, everybody's pretty restrained for the most part in this film, except for possibly Kid Poochie, I guess. Kid Poochie. Yeah. Kid Poochie. It, like, oh, so the next thing that happens in the movie is we get the Chekhov's gun of the film, which is that Kid Poochie has a, has a program of some kind on a, on a mm-hmm. floppy disk, one of the kinds that was actually floppy. And yep. uh, Karen Allen like sticks it to the refrigerator door with a magnet, and he and Kid Poochie finds this, and he whines about it. He's like, "Ma, you wiped out my new program. You never put computer disks near a magnet." Oh yeah, that was great. It's like right away you're like, "Yep, this is how they kill the bad right, guy. Okay. This is totally it." Why would you say that otherwise? <laughs> like that scene in Jaws where they're like, "Never shoot at a at an oxygen tank with a yeah. rifle. What's the matter with you? These tanks are gonna blow up." <laughs> <laughs> Why would a movie explain how something works like that unless it's going to be used to defeat the killer? Yeah. Uh, but so here, just from here on, just like uh, hijinks ensue. They're like the, the killer is in the mainframe and people are hacking the mainframe. And I think he starts going down Karen Allen's digitized address book because it's been scanned in with the scanner and killing everybody in her address book like he did when he was alive, right? Yeah. And the kills in this, we'll get into some of the details of them. Uh, it's basically Final Destination. You know, yes. Final for Final Destination is this film without any of the fun, weird stuff. Because Final Destination films are all about, like, what if you put your hand into a garbage disposal and then it turned on? Right. Or what if, what if accidents happened and they were graphic and uh-huh. fatal? And, of course, in this film, our ghost in the machine is engineering those moments. Right. In, in Final Destination, just... There's this implication of this uh, impersonal figure of, like, death that's making all these mm-hmm. things happen. In this movie, it's literally just a guy's ghost. Yeah, which, you know, I have to say, Final Destination, that's, that's BS, because the, the death, <laughs> death doesn't even make any fun puns, right? Yeah. Lame. Uh, so then uh, we get uh, Kid Poochie and his friend being pervy teens, and uh, and then uh, there's a great scene where the killer starts like trying to mess with Kid Poochie uh, by sending him emails. But in this movie, quote, email is something where you need to know someone's, quote, number to contact them, and there's like real-time typing in chat. So it's emailed, oh, but, like, okay. you can see what the, the words appearing as they are typed. Okay. Yeah. So, yep. Great. Um, and God, so there's just this middle section of the movie where all this mischief is going on. The killers like messing with people and sometimes killing people. Uh, there, I guess before we get to the VR scene, there is, Oh, there's a great scene where kid Poochie just spills Oreos all over the place. It's just an Oreo nightmare. 
Yeah, yeah. Mom walks in and he's just got Oreos all over the counter and just eating them off the Oreos like an absolute animal. And it's just another one of these scenes where like, oh, come on, poor yeah. Karen Allen. Like this kid, he's not the worst, but he's a handful. Yeah. And then Bram Walker eventually makes contact with Karen Allen's character because I think the premise is that the killer has been messing around in DataNet's computers, mm -hmm. and he has noticed that the killer is obsessed with Karen Allen. So he comes to her house, and he's like, all this stuff about you keeps coming up in our files. And her response is like, but I hate computers. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think she has this line where she says something like, you give us Ticketron and bank machines, but then we get some kind of big brother. <laughs> yeah. Was Ticketron a real thing or is that made up for the movie? Ticketron? Uh, I, I, it sounds made up. Yeah. I'm happy to be corrected, but it really sounds made up. Uh, but so, yeah, then we're then we're in full final destination mode. And uh, so the killer is just going after people. Now, I have to say, unfortunately, this is another movie. I didn't pick these on purpose uh, for them to be this way. This is another movie like Boggy <laughs> Creek 2 that does not pass the does the dog die test. Uh, yes. Or does the dog survive test, whatever you want to call it. Um, this this movie, unfortunately, does kill a dog. It, it doesn't happen on screen. Right. But it, it happens off screen. And I have to say, it breaks the dog rule in just absolute style. It's just a terrific scene. I'm not a big fan of dog deaths in, in movies either. Uh, I'm not a dog person, but I'm, I'm not crazy for them or anything. But this is clearly the best dog death ever in a motion picture. Uh, it sort of first suggests of all, that, like the dog kind of deserves it. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. Like they kind of go Friday the 13th on it where, you know, where you you imply or you you show that this particular character is promiscuous and therefore somehow deserving of death, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, that's a whole topic unto itself. But in here, it's in dog form because we firmly establish that um, our hero's dog is just a perv, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because here's what happened. So the killer... Uh, at first, I thought, oh, he wants to get rid of the dog. So, you know, because the dog is the first line of defense. But then I realized he probably just wants to kill the dog just because um, he's going down the list. Right. Right. So what he does is he, you know, he jacks into the house and he turns on the TV in the house and turns it to a channel that is like an all dog channel. Mm -hmm. And so the the actual dog in the house is like, oh, I've got to watch this, runs into the <laughs> living room and is so excited by this by the footage of another dog that he starts humping the coffee table. Weird. Uh, yeah. And then the, I'm trying to remember what happens. Next. There's something where he makes something else fly at the dog's head. Yeah, something like that. Like a phone um, or the something. The dog somehow which, ends up outside in the backyard. Yeah, startles the the horny dog outside by the pool. Okay, and then there's ominous music. Cut away. When we we find out later, somehow he further got the dog into the pool and then managed to turn on the automated cover for the pool, which is not a hard cover. This is not like. Um, one of those James Bond films where it's like a metal cover that goes over the this, this top, top of it. This is just like a tarp. Yeah, it's not like Thunderball. This is just a tarp on like automated wheels. Somehow that traps the dog in there and the dog drowns. Uh, I think there's the implication that the killer may have also used the automatic uh, snaking pool cleaner robot to to kill the dog. Yes, that's right. It's It's not 
perfectly executed, but, but we see shades of this when Kid Poochie goes in to rescue the dog, and he gets wrapped up in the, the pool cleaning robot, and the cover starts closing, and it's just great because the music is ratcheting up. Uh-huh. It's, it's implying if he gets stuck in here, he will drown. He'll be he'll be doomed. When again, this is just a tarp. Like there's yeah. nothing. He's Why not going to be sealed in. It's <laughs> well, not even like it's not even all the way you know close to the water. Like there's room to breathe in there. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, ridiculous scene. But why would you make a pool cover like that? <laughs> the mechanized rollers <laughs> that automatically cover it up. This is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, there is also a big VR scene. Actually, the VR scene, I think, happens right before this, where the kid and his buddies are playing a virtual reality video game at the mall, like you do, and the killer somehow gets into there and freaks them out. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty fun too, and has some nice nice. These are some of the cheesier graphics, but they do fit within the context of the time. I would say, as far as the uh, like the attacks by the killer go, I think my favorite is when it attacks Karen Allen's boyfriend, who is working at a crash test simulator. Which so it's just this like warehouse of peril. It's a perfect setup for a Final Destination style scene. Yeah, yeah, where they're doing crash test stuff. Yeah, and he keeps. The guy, it's, they really, I will say this scene is funny, especially when it concludes, but it, it goes on so long. Like they really drag it out. He's just like, let's have him put his head under the tire. Now he'll put his body (laughs) under this thing. They just put him in peril again and again and again. And then by the time it ends, you you are not expecting what happens, which is that he, he gets killed by an automatic hand dryer in a bathroom. Yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty great. They were clearly uh playing that one up for laughs they also have a scene where they're like will the ch- the young child be boiled or scalded by boiling water or somehow hurt oh, by yeah, an oven God. and they they pull the punch on that one which yeah. which is good yeah i don't i don't i don't think the movie ever has any uh young children getting uh no, well no. like the babysitter gets killed by a dishwasher right well that that does happen uh but uh but yeah uh, for the most part they, they keep it tasteful um probably <laughs> no, the, they the, don't <laughs> No, well, I mean, they well, they kill well, the dog, and yes, they don't they kill, kill a lot the, of people. They don't kill the young child. Okay, they don't kill the young child. Yeah, yeah, they don't cross that line. Other lines are crossed, but not that one. Um, the microwave scene is a great kill. That one is pretty amazing. So there is a guy who gets cooked by his microwave oven from across the room. I think. I, yep. Brief monster science diversion. I don't think that's very plausible. I mean, not like that that's what they really had in mind, that these deaths are plausible. I mean, I don't think the hand dryer is plausible either. But uh, if a microwave were to even like have all of its safety features disabled and end up just mm-hmm. blasting microwave radiation directly into the kitchen with you, I think it could burn you if you were really close. But electromagnetic radiation spreads out according to the inverse square law. So if you're like across the room from it, I, I think you're probably out of danger unless you're there for a long time instead it just shows it like instantly boiling this guy from all the way across the room yeah it's it's a gross scene they do a good job with it but yeah it it just turns the the microwaves is cracked open and it turns the whole room into a microwave uh which you know we did an invention episode maybe a pair of episodes i can't recall on the microwave oven and I think we briefly touched on ridiculous mm. microwave kill scenes in horror movies. We might have even mentioned this film, yeah. even though we neither of us had seen it yet at that point. Um, huh. But yeah, you see, you see this from time to time, the idea that the microwave can do crazy things. Now, of course, the final part of the movie involves the heroes like Karen Allen and, uh, and Bram 
what's his name, Bram Walker, setting a trap for the killer that I think, I don't remember if it originally in their plan involves a magnet, but ends up involving a giant electromagnet. And I got to say, this is a, a narrative device that I really like when the heroes are faced with an unstoppable killing machine, they have to set a trap for it. Uh, it's in predator. It's in, it follows it's in tons of movies that are a lot of fun. I'm not sure why I like that device so much, but, but I feel like it's a good way to conclude a movie of this type. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to work pretty well. And, uh, it's, I guess it's pretty fun, uh, ending for the film, Like basically he somehow, the, the killer assumes physical form. I think he's what they're like little nanobots or something. something he becomes like a cloud of nanobots, yeah, and keeps trying to pour himself into the eyeballs of his victims um, without leaving a scratch on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he kind of comes off as a low rent T one thousand in these scenes. Yes. And it also reminds me a bit of the 1995 cyber movie, Virtuosity, in which Ooh. Denzel Washington has to fight the ultimate serial killer, Sid 6.7, who's a, a simulation AI that's supposed to be a composite of all the worst killers in history, which, of course, breaks out by somehow, I think, printing himself as a silicon-based life form or something like that. <laughs> is, is it Russell Crowe or somebody like him? It is. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's young, young Russell Crowe. It's like Russell Crowe right as he was exploding. Uh-huh. We should maybe come back and look at that movie again sometime. That That's a good 90s cyber panic movie. Yeah, yeah. I remember it being a lot of fun. So I've actually got a, a, a deep thoughts segment for this episode. Uh, Ghost in the Machine got me thinking about a number of things, uh, which is that one thing, like I said, that's funny about this movie is that it takes a phrase from the philosophy of mind, Ghost in the Machine, which I'll explain in just a minute, and it makes it totally literal like i didn't even realize that until after i watched the movie and we were talking about it that the title is just a statement of exactly what happens in the plot there's a ghost inside the machines the microwave is haunted (laughs) but uh the phrase ghost in the machine is usually attributed to the 20th century british philosopher gilbert ryle who used this phrase to describe Descartes' concept of mind-body dualism, also known as Cartesian dualism, which is the belief that the mind, like your ability to think consciously, is a non-physical substance and that the mind and the body are distinct and can be separated from one another. And Ryle was a philosopher who lectured at Oxford. Uh, he, He used the phrase ghost in the machine in a 1949 book called The Concept of Mind, which was very influential for a while. It was an attack on this idea and an attack on the validity of of mind-body dualism. Uh, for Ryle, pretty much every time he says ghost in the machine in the book, it is preceded by the phrase like the myth of or the dogma mm. of. So ghost in the machine for him is a, a confusion, a, a, um, a confusion that arises from problems in thinking about what the mind is. And Ryle basically argues in this book, uh, I want to be clear, I haven't read it, but I was reading about it. I was reading some summaries and reading some passages from it. And it seems like the core of his argument is that he thinks mind-body dualism is an unnecessary confusion that's created by unclear use of language uh, and really not understanding what we're talking about when we use words like mind. Um, Ryle's argument was that thinking of the mind and the body as two separate things – 
is wrong in the sense that it conceives of them as two distinct things in the same category, i.e. the mind and the body are both objects or both substances. And I think for Ryle saying the mind and the body are two separate things is like a gambler saying there are three things in my hand, one die, another die, and a pair of dice. Those are the three Mm. things. Uh, So I want to read a a passage from chapter one of The Concept of Mind, where he explains this idea a little further. Quote, a purchaser might say that he bought a left-hand glove and a right-hand glove, but not that he bought a left-hand glove, a right-hand glove, and a pair of gloves. Quote, she came home in a flood of tears and a sedan chair is a well-known joke based on the absurdity of conjoining terms of different types. It would have been equally ridiculous to construct the disjunction. She came home either in a flood of tears or else in a sedan chair. Uh, And then a little later, he says, I am not, for example, denying that there occur mental processes. Doing long division is a mental process and so is making a joke. But I am saying that the phrase, there occur mental processes, does not mean the same sort of thing as there occur physical processes. And therefore, it makes no sense to conjoin or disjoin the two. So I think for Ryle, when you're thinking about minds and bodies, talking about the ghost in the machine is like talking about the pair in the two gloves. There are actually two gloves. You could say that. There is actually a pair of gloves, you can say that, but the pair is not a thing, not a thing that it would make any sense to claim is either the same as or different from the gloves. Now, obviously, Ryle had critics who argued back against him, but I do find myself somewhat sympathetic to his point of view, and I wonder if Ryle's thinking here would have any wisdom to offer the more literal implications uh, of of thinking like we see in the story concept of Ghost in the Machine, because I want to be clear, like, while we're laughing at the concept of Ghost in the Machine, like there's literally, you know, the computer is haunted, somebody's ghost went into the electrical grid – In a way, people still think like this, like even very smart people who know a lot about brains and computers. There are some of them who believe that they will soon be able to upload themselves into a computer or have their mind live on past the death of their physical body on a machine somehow. Now, you know, I I can't say that I know something like that is impossible, but the more I think about that idea over the years, the more strange and possibly confused it seems to me. And I think If people actually believe they can become the ghost in the machine, I wonder, is that kind of like saying, well, I can preserve my pair of gloves by putting them into the safe deposit box. Of course, the gloves themselves will be destroyed. They'll be burned, but I'll still have the pair. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, I I often feel the same way about uh, often sometimes very cyberpunky properties that involve uh, uploading of consciousness, transfer of consciousness between bodies. And it kind of gets into the same territory you get into with teleportation in science fiction, where yeah. if you if you think about it too hard, you're like, this is destruction. Like this is this is every time you know, you're just destroying yourself every time you use that um, that teleporter, uh, guys. But mm-hmm. um, but it, I don't know. In, in certain properties, it it feels appropriate, right? Because the idea that humans could end up doing something like even religiously doing something that is innately destructive or in no way preserves who they are but doing it out of the mistaken idea that it does. I mean, a lot of the things we do for the ego are exactly like that. Yeah. 
Well, there you get into some really deep arguments. This actually brings up something that I've I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a while, which is um uh oh I forget the philosopher's name who brings this up, so I, I shouldn't get too deep into it now. We'll we'll have to come back. But basically, it is the problem of trying to imagine what future states of yourself would want or imagining desiring changes to yourself. And so one example mm-hmm. of this is, would you like to become a vampire? And so like you can weigh the pros and cons of that. Like, okay, yeah, yeah I could live longer, but there might be downsides. But the problem is the version of you that would be making the decision about whether or not you would like to become a vampire uh, would be different once you are the vampire and you may no longer have the same, the same judgments about the pros and cons if you were a vampire, because that would necessarily entail changes to yourself. Oh, wow. We should definitely come back and talk about that either as a, a straight up episode of stuff to blow your mind or find a suitably weird vampire movie uh, to wrap around <laughs> it one or the other. But of course, that's, that's even more complicated if you can't even be guaranteed that there is you know, whatever we think we mean when we say the continuation of consciousness. Yeah. Because again, it's one of those things where you're talking about, you're continuing this thing that's happening now. And I don't really fully understand the thing that's happening now. I'm not, I'm not even completely awake to some of the illusions that are wrapped up in the continuation of myself as I am much less when you start thinking about some computerized version of me, some robotic version of me, some version of my brain put into a, another real or uh, engineered body. It would be interesting if you had one of these films where, like, Russell Crowe, the serial killer in the digital form, like, he takes he takes human form, and then he becomes a great guy. Or, uh, <laughs> or our, our ghost in this film, like, he becomes one with the internet and just decides to, um, you know, to streamline the power grid <laughs> or something, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> which, because you're, you're still talking about such a drastic transformation of self- you know, why would you still have the same aims and, um, you know, uh, you know, petty vengeances in mind? Yeah. It's like saying, like, what if I became an exploding star? Uh, would I would I finally get around to watching Twin Peaks? No, I would be an exploding star. Like, that's probably <laughs> what I would be super into doing is just continuing to, to explode. I'm beyond Twin Peaks at this point. What if you were a screensaver, though? Then I'd be super into saving screens, I guess. Uh, or I'd be that mouse in the maze, right? Did you have a favorite uh, 1990 screensaver from like the After Dark suite? I was just always Starscape, straight up Starscape. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is amazing. It's like, it's it, it's basically a, a video game uh, for my mind. You know, there's there's not much going on except you are traveling through space. And that alone felt like a revolution. I was a fan of that one, too. It's one of the simplest ones, but I always thought it was really good. I I need to put one back on my machine. I, it's not like a default option anymore. You got to engineer it, which is a shame. Come on, Apple. Well, now these screens just turn off. I mean, what's yeah. that all about? Oh God, that's a great moment in this film where she comes in and she gets onto the the, the teen, and she's like, she's like, oh, and turn off this computer. Uh, yeah, electricity's not free, you know. Oh yeah, that which was I, I love that. It's like this uh, such a foreign concept today for so many of us. Turn off the computer? You mean yeah. turn turn it off? Are you asking me for my heart to stop beating? Are you telling me to turn <laughs> off my brain? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we're going to have to close it out there. But yeah, this was a fun one. Um, you can find this one, I think, pretty much anywhere you can rent something right now. Uh, look, you watch it on Amazon Prime. I watched it on whatever the default uh, rental option is in an Xbox. I did that. But I checked, and you can also pick this one up cheap on DVD if you want to make it a permanent physical part of your collection. I got to say, even though 
like I said, I don't think anyone could make the argument that this is a good movie. This is definitely a bad movie. It does make me want to watch more Rachel Talalay stuff. Like, I want to watch all her Doctor Who episodes. I'm going to go watch Tank Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't yeah, know. I, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to finish more. up Tank Girl myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, the, the talent shines through with this. Uh, this is definitely one of those where, where people cared about the product. Beep, deep, beep, beep, deep, beep, beep, beep. Hey, folks, we're doing a uh, post-recording insert because we wanted to tell you about something really exciting. Our amazing producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, is launching a podcast of his own. And I th- think the first episodes are out today. Is that right, Seth? That's correct. I'm very excited about it. The show is called Record Store Society. And uh, if you listening to this, if you consider yourself a music nerd, if you're the kind of person that likes to talk about music, hear about music, be introduced to new kinds of music, if you're the kind of person that likes to frequent your local record store, then then this show is literally made for you. I mean, in many ways, it's made for me because I'm that person, but it's also made for you if you are like me. And uh, the, the basic premise of it is uh, myself and my co-host, Tara Davies, uh, we work at a record store and every day our customers come and they visit and they are shopping around and we have conversations with them and you can be a fly on the wall we play games uh we mostly just talk about music and we have a good time and that's that's more or less it it's wish fulfillment it's a it's it's escapism in this wild 2020 world it's um it's it's for you you know (laughs) uh yeah and just uh for for you stuff to blow your mind listener well who else would be listening for for you out there (laughs) listening uh it's possible we may ourselves show up as guests on the the show at some point i've i've been told there may be need of a a neil young nerd like me one day in the future so that that is the truth uh we have not recorded it yet but the goal is definitely to have a very neil young centric episode with joe and uh and that'll be a lot of fun uh, uh, Robert, if you had to pick, what, what's your number one music fascination? What's the thing you like more than anything? Oh man, I mean that's a tough one um, because there's there's things there's things I'm fascinated with and things that I would definitely be up for talking about. So I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I would talk about Tool albums. I don't know. Ooh. Maybe it would be. Uh, ooh, uh, I, I get fascinated by weird stuff too these days. Like I'm I'm, I'm currently I'm really fascinated by Egyptomania uh, mm. with recording artists. So. Um, uh, you know, people like uh, Egyptian Lover, uh, right. the the uh, uh, you know the, the early hip hop um, artist whose whole deal is that he's an actual pharaoh. <laughs> the, the, these are the kind of things we will dive into the deepest minutia of uh, if you, if you're a fan. So yeah, check out Record Store Society. It's here on the iHeart Network, and uh, it comes out today. The first two episodes are already live, and we have new episodes every Friday. Make sure you check it out. All right, I, I'm so excited. Don't miss it, folks. Um, all right. Well, we're going to close it out there. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about this film, about some of the other films that we briefly mentioned, other cyber panic films, uh, films that you think we should watch in the future. Uh, yeah, everything's up for grabs. You, you have some ideas about the deeper thoughts we got into here, some of the actors and uh, filmmakers that we mentioned. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, this is going to come out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Tuesdays and Thursdays will remain core science and culture episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But Friday, Friday is the day where we get to celebrate weird films such as this one. It is when our souls go online. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. (laughs) Right. 
Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 